One of the teachers here, uh, Joseph, who is also a founder, member of IMS, had a book published some years ago, which is called The Experience of Insight. And it was subtitled A Natural Unfolding. And I would like to give a little commentary, if I may, this evening on a natural unfolding. Living on one side of the Atlantic and paying um, infrequent visits to the other side of the Atlantic, most of the news that one uh, gets is, of course, uh, through the media, which is probably the worst place of all to look for news. Um, and the other is through one's friends who write letters. And to some degree or other, um, rightly or wrongly, I've um, been forming an impression of what I would consider a something of a rather alarming trend which is taking place in, in the States and has its counterpart in, uh, in Europe and in England. And the trend which seems to be taking place is this, an upsurge in self-interest and having with it a political and social philosophy which tends to reinforce it again and again. And one of the things which I've been hearing about is that in colleges, in schools, in university, universities, there is this tremendous striving to get on. And so one of the major motivations behind being in college, being in university, is to get good grades and to get good grades in order to get a good job and to establish oneself in a career which is going to enable one to secure the largest possible kind of income and influence. And there's a whole kind of rationale which goes along with this form of thinking that if one really works hard through the educational process and enters into a career, that somehow or other this outlook and this way of thinking is not only good for oneself, which is questionable enough, but it's also it's good for one's society. And so there is this encouragement which is taking place. And as a result, there is often, unfortunately at this time, amongst young people, a real neglect of social issues, of uh, peace issues, of issues which are about the real quality of life. And of course, there are um, exceptions to this, but generally there seems to be this, this pattern towards profit, privilege, power, position, and so forth. And I've even heard, which is perhaps even more alarming, that there's a new kind of status amongst the young people here 
and that is in, in joining the army. I th this I found remarkable, um, where, whereby young people are putting on the uniform and it's becoming a new kind of symbol for uh, one's position. And again it reflects, a kind, I would say, a kind of social trend and pattern towards very conservative type of thinking with self-interest being the primary motivation. And one has this, the same kind of equivalent in, in England. And all of this, I would say, is in contrast to what I will speak about in a minute, which is a natural unfolding. And one has this equivalent in England. And just recently I went to meet with a person who is the foremost uh, speaker, one might say, on green politics in Britain. And I had um, an interview with him, a man named Jonathan Porritt. And he was telling me that, he, that the Ecology Party, which I would consider one of the more thoughtful uh, political movements in the West, was contesting a small a by-election for a member of parliament in Britain. And rather than um, appeal just to self-interest, they took up two issues. They took up armaments and all that is implied in that and the direct relationship of armaments to poverty. How this massive and relentless expenditure on armaments already is responsible for the loss of millions of lives on this earth, already has caused a catastrophe, let alone what it may do in the future. And they contested this localist by-election for a member of parliament. Some 60,000, 70,000 people had the opportunity to vote in that particular election. The Ecology Party campaigned on these two issues. They also engaged in some fasting. They brought a great number of supporters to engage in door knocking. And the result was they received 250 votes. It's a kind of reflection of a situation where there is this strong appeal to self-interest that you can be anything you want, you can get anything you want, it's there for the asking, it's there for the getting, and as a result of that it produces its own blindness. When one is going against a natural unfolding, I would say it shows itself in our living situation, and I'll bring it back to our practice and retreat here, shows itself in two major themes in life. One is the pursuit of knowledge and, with, and, going and accompanying that pursuit of knowledge is the act of will. And that bring these two to get together, which are nourished and fed and, in, and encouraged through all the competitiveness that one goes with it, the mind can be directed upon a certain course of action. And in the centre of all of this knowledge and this will which is expressing itself all too easily and frequently tends to be self, me, I, ego. 
and one can't effectively see beyond that. And so when one gets young people, inexperienced in, in life, and often their sensitivities been dulled by all the things that dull the sensitivities, these two, this knowledge and will, becomes predominant, and one pushes hard for success in life, and in that pushing hard, one misses life. One is blind to life. And as a, as a result, the, the politics of protest, the politics of concern, the expressions of awareness fade into the background. And certainly much can be gotten and gained in life through willpower, through knowledge, through in information. But whether it's the way to work intelligently with life, that's another matter altogether. In contrast to that, in looking at our relationship to life, a natural unfolding is something different. It's very active, it's not passive, but it approaches our way of looking and acting and functioning life from a different position. And what tends to happen in a retreat situation, in coming in here to do some meditation, we bring in the, the models and the values that we have, and rather understandably, we, as it were, impose them into this kind of situation. So perhaps we've come from this idea of success, and success contrast with failure, of having rather than not having, of the use of the will with information and, and drive. And we think, well, this is what we've learned. This is what we've been told success is all about, about how people become successful. And so we come into a, a retreat and we implant it into this situation. And so we feel, well, here I am, wh whatever that state of mind, body is, and this is where I can get to, and I'm going to do what I can to get to this place. That's, that's, that's the way we know, that's what we think living is all about. And we, br we bring that in, and so we have as some kind of ideal or objective, this peace and, and uh, harmony and uh, bliss and compassion and uh, uh, all, all these other nebulous things. And this is, the, the, this is what we're, we're going for. We bring in the determination and the expectation which comes, and we find that the more we push ourselves, the harder we force ourselves, we produce the opposite. Instead of producing peace, we produce pressure. Instead of producing re relaxation, we produce tension. Instead of bringing about clearness, we bring about confusion. Instead of having the feeling that we're getting somewhere, we end up with the feeling that we're not getting anywhere. So in other words, some responses to life of 
applying one's intention to do with information, etc., etc., is a value and is appropriate. One brings it into a, a fresh situation, and particularly the spiritual field, and it just doesn't work like that. Another different way of relating. And so, areas in life where you and I find ourselves coming up against the wall in some way or other, and we find ourselves <coughs> reacting or responding to something in the same way, and we're still coming up against the wall, then it means that we're going about it unskillfully. We've got to find out well, what's an alternative, alternative ways of doing things. So there's some balance which needs to be found with regard to finding out what a, a natural unfolding is. And very easily it can sound to be a rather um, passive or a, a waiting for something, but rather it's finding the balance between what's one's willpower and what that means, what is right effort and what that means, what is indifference and apathy. And to some extent, the condition of our mind very, very easily moves between all three of these. And so you look at the course of today, how your practice has been going today, what's the, what's the features, what's the characteristic of your meditations today? And we, we'd rather have to look as uh, as hopefully, as honestly and clearly. What's been the condition of my meditations today? What have I actually experienced, been experiencing today? Not what I would like it to be like, that's another whole ball game altogether, but what the, what the actuality of it is. And then in being aware of what the actuality is, in seeing that actuality, what's my response or reaction to that actuality? How am I in relationship to the primary mental, physical experience which has been occurring for me during the course of, the, of today? What's my relationship to that? So there's one thing of, of the experience, it might be calm, clear, it might be agitated and anxious, doesn't matter what, what is the actual experience and how am I relating to it? Is it sometimes that I find it's not very good, it's difficult, I judge it in that way, and then I say to myself, well, I must push myself harder, I'm not working hard enough. Really, I've really got to get into it. And is that always the, the appropriate response to certain kinds of mind states. Maybe that will only feed more of that difficulty. Or is it sometimes in, in say we'll, we'll experience something, some mental experience which is occurring, 
and we just tend to judge it far too quickly. We don't give ourselves a time and opportunity just to be aware of what we're experiencing. And in that judging, it's good, it's bad, it's right or wrong, I like it, I don't like it, we tend to lose in the judgment the opportunity just to be in touch with, just to feel what we're feeling. And all of that is an opportunity for us to regard, difficult as it may be, what we are experiencing as a natural unfolding. It's coming out of our life, it's coming out of our body, shall we say, out of our mind, out of our heart, out of our thoughts or, or whatever. And that which is occurring is coming out and to see that just for itself as part of a process which is taking place. Now sometimes when we're, when we're say we're working with the breathing and we see there's a movement away from the breathing. You know if you're, if you're in the course of a sitting you're you know, if you're 1% of the time with your breathing, then that's a remarkable achievement. People say, you know, I've been saying during the day in the, in the group interviews, you know, I'm, I'm about 2% of the time with the breath, you know, this, this is phenomenal. <laughs> and there's hope. We have to, anyway. <laughs> so, and so in this beginning and working with, with the breathing, and if one is with the breath once, or one, one is with the breath for two consecutive breathings, then there's an interest and a focus which is there. There's, there's something to work with, something to, something to develop. Not something to push, but something to develop and cultivate in a quiet way. And in the time when the mind leaves the breathing, and it goes somewhere else, to something else, whatever the form of mental state, physical state which is arising, when we become aware of that actual departure from the breathing to something, whether it's obvious or vague or whatever, in that period that is called spiritual language, that is called self-knowledge. So life itself and the meditative uh, process itself has, as part of this natural unfoldment there, both the capability of developing a focused and attentive mind for all the value that that can give to a human being, and equally significantly being aware of those departures from that focus of mind to see what is the self-knowledge which is arising. What is standing out for me? What is it that perhaps I'm not dealing with in my daily life? What is it that's not um, sorted out? What is not resolved? What is not complete? Or whatever. So, so even though it seems like for oneself, God, every time my mind moves away from the breathing, it oughtn't to do that. You know, one, feel, one feels like whipping oneself 
you know, or getting a hold of oneself and saying, get it together, whatever. And the mind just doesn't, it doesn't take any notice of your best intentions. You should know that by now. It, it does its number. And this is the best place on the planet for the mind to do its number. It gets a free reign sometimes. It, it, it leaves the, as it was, the, as it were, the selected object of attention and can it go? And it goes to places which one didn't even know existed, like, like, like that. And then one gets a, a, a little reminder, you know, someone blows their nose behind you and, oh, right, in breath, out breath. <laughs> I mean, it is an in breath and out breath blowing one's nose, but please don't make a practice of it. <laughs> So there, is, so there is this focusing of the attention with the, with the breathing. That's one aspect of the practice, but which sometimes can be hard to see and to appreciate, that the departure from the breathing and what takes place is equally of value. It's not something to be put down or rejected or judged harshly, but is an, truly an aspect of one's practice because that's self-knowledge. That's where we can gain some clarity or some insight and learning. Now the tendency is, with these movements of mind, is that we don't regard them as a natural unfolding. We say it oughtn't to be there, so there's a, a reaction to that process. And then we think, well, I've left the breath and I'm thinking about my relationship or I'm thinking about this, uh, uh, this job or having to go back on um, Monday morning or his apartment or what, what, whatever it is which is uh, arising for us. And we think, if I think a little bit more about it, then I'll, I'll really come to some answer. I'll come to some clarity about it. And so there's this tremendous temptation that once has started some thinking, some fantasizing and some projection, and then one's going to make it all clear. So one, one has this peculiar logic. I start off with confusion. If I add more confusion, I become clear. And one wonders <laughs> how confusion built upon con confusion is going to result in anything else but the doubling and the tripling of confusion. This would seem to me a logical extension. But we don't think that. And, and so there's always, within the thinking and the departure from the breathing, just enough variation to keep us stimulated. You see, sometimes when it gets very repetitive, then we get really fed up with it, and then we come back to the breathing. <laughs> but there's usually just enough entertainment going on there in which one's self can be on the centre of the stage, usually playing either a victorious role or a victim role, and one can have that continuity of floundering about in one's mental muck. <laughs> <laughs> and part of the purpose of being aware of that and that exercising of that discipline to come back to the breathing and to steady in oneself and in that respect to actually deepening the consciousness 
is in order that, that self-knowledge can become such that it leads and lends itself towards self-understanding. That we can understand more clearly what is happening and sometimes gain some insight into it. So, always in our life, being wary both of the reactions and the judgments which come about what we're experiencing and the kind of belief which tends to accompany it that if we keep thinking about it's going to solve it. And so we're, again we're trying to work in a different way. And one might say that this again has its extension in, in our in our in our society in our society where there is so much thinking about so much um, uh, investigation, so much proliferation of more and more and more knowledge in the newspapers and the, and the media and the, and the libraries and, and the research that we're being saturated with information. We're, we're drowning in information. We've got so much knowledge about so many things and all of this output is rendering human beings helpless. And so when one is constantly faced with new information and new events and new stories, one ends up feeling, well, what can I do? The situations are so big, the, the, the situations are so urgent, I am so small, how can one do anything? And so one is suffocated by everything that's pouring into one. That's the danger of knowledge. And some of the issues of the world don't require a tremendous amount of knowledge. They require an awareness, a sensitive awareness, require a spaciousness in one's mind. And the simple use of knowledge and the, and the capacity to apply that sensitive knowledge. So let us in our daily life situation really be aware of how much we're taking in and how much we're absorbing which is inhibiting action. And if it does, better to be without that knowledge, without that information. Better to open oneself up inside to the degree necessary to be able to extend one's understanding into life. In giving and exploring ways to find this sense of balance and, balance and the use of will on the one side, the reaction to that on the other side, which can show itself in uh, apathy and indifference, trying to pilot a middle course, a middle, a middle way, and this particularly applies itself in practice and meditation. And one of the things which occurs in the process of the, of the practice is that it seems initially, as it is really, very formalized. It's a formalized situation, a group of people coming together, meeting at specific times in the meditation hall, 
meeting, in, uh, engaging in walking practice. There's a kind of rota which is fixed during the day. And one finds oneself moving from one situation to the next. And all that formalization can have, I feel rather self-evidently, several disadvantages. You know, it's a little bit like a, a classroom atmosphere. Uh, it's, it's very structured. Um, there's not a, a great deal of freedom of movement, etc., etc. And so sometimes in the course of a day, one can rather react to all of this or all of these formalities. But again, it's not so much the form which is important, it's merely a, a simple tool. It's what's happening inside, what's one's relationship to what is happening. Because in many fields of activity, in many work activities, especially where there's timetable, very easily in life we find ourselves reacting to it. And so, going to work at nine o'clock on a Monday morning and finishing at five o'clock in the evening uh, itself is troublesome. It's, it's the relationship to time, the relationship to form which is so important. And sometimes we wish, we wish things could be different and, and we project into, oh, how nice it would be to have a life which is just a natural unfolding. You know, natural unfolding would be getting up when I feel like it, you know, and going to bed when I feel like it, and doing what one wants in life. But where is the freedom in that? After a while of having that kind of so-called freedom to do what one wants, to have what one wants, etc., etc., the mind, given the condition of mind, must react to that. Must feel empty, must feel worthless, must feel there's no real point in that. And that's no better reflected in, than so frequently in the lives of the rich. Accumulating, accumulating compulsively and no deep inner joy or vitality in life. So our relationship to, to life and, our, and to the particular events which face us. And sometimes, of course, one wishes to be more spontaneous, to, to feel that. And so sometimes in a situation like being here, one feels, well, one can't be spontaneous. But spontaneity is nothing to do with form, nothing to do with structure directly. It's something to do with something inwardly. I remember on a retreat a year or two ago in, um, in Budgaya, people were... Budgaya is a place where the Buddha is uh, said to have come to his awakening. And one of the people on the uh, retreat, who actually is also a friend here of IMS, was doing his walking meditation and he was wearing um, a lungi, you know, this is a kind of a, a, a wrap round a piece of cloth, and doing his walking meditation outside. <clears throat> and in the course of this uh, walking meditation, he suddenly decided to uh, run. And he completely changed the pattern. Everybody else is doing their um, slow, customary 
walking and he slide, decided to run. I was just 10 or 15 yards um, away from him at the time. And rather unfortunately for him, he, his big toe got caught in the lungi. And so instead of doing a run, he went for a flight. And he literally, it was quite extraordinary, he, he, he actually took off. <laughs> so other people looked up and observed him flying through the air and went back to their meditation practice. So I came up to him and um, I said, look, we're not practicing TM here. <laughs> 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 and um, he, he said to me, I just decided, um, he was nursing a rather a bruised toe, the poor chap. Um, he said, I, I decided I just had to be spontaneous. <laughs> so my question to him was, and he spent the rest of the retreat, I think, thinking about it. My question to him was, what's the difference between being impulsive and being spontaneous? And sometimes now, I'm look, don't look to me. <laughs> sometimes in our life, in our relationship, we, we don't distinguish between one and, and the other. And certainly spontaneity and the understanding of that and natural unfolding in life, those two are very much akin, run very much close together, and impulse and will tend to run close together. And it's this use with in a sensible and uh, applicable way, and with, with discretion, the willingness to use our mind in such a way that when we're pushing it too hard, we're aware of it. If one pays a price in one's life in terms of the fruits and suffering, it's this pushing of oneself too hard. And it's extraordinarily difficult in life to be able to look at and, and resist that kind of pressure, which both comes from outside and is also internalized. The tremendous pressures which we get upon ourselves to push ourselves harder. We identify with this pressure, we internalize it, we don't believe that it can be any other way and we manifest out that pressure and so we give the same message out to other people. And that the cost of that psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, physically and, and socially is, is staggering. So we, we ask ourselves, you know, with this area of will and with this area of knowledge, in what, which areas of my life do I tend to push myself too hard? What's actually going on there for me? What's my justification for living like this? What's the consequences of living in this way? And those are not easy 
easy questions to, to ask oneself. Because it brings immediately to, to our mind areas which we have to look at and have to explore and, and, and get that, as the Buddha said so frequently, find and establish that middle way to really, to really make that balance um, an effective tool for our whole, whole existence. <clears throat> and sometimes it's, it's this, this background factor which makes us push ourselves too hard. It's the, the idea that if I don't, I'll stagnate. And there's a real fear in, 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 in us that if we don't push ourselves hard in life, we won't get anywhere, that we'll slip back, we'll, we'll slide, we'll, we won't be useful, we won't be effective. And that kind of fear makes us keep pushing. Or it's the pushing hard because somewhere in the back of our, our mind we have the idea that if we push hard, people are going to respect us. We're going to, we're going to get some real acknowledgement from other people. We're going to show to them that we really are somebody, that we really have accomplished something. And so the motive itself goes unquestioned. So we bring in this driving, driving force. We push ourselves hard and it's all to achieve the approval of other people. That's the real motivation behind it. Or to prove something to oneself or to our parents or whoever it might be. And it takes courage to question that way of living. It takes courage to look at those, those fears of failure. And we can make, one might say, some small inroads in our situation, in our meditation situation, here. Doing our practice carefully, mindfully, conscientious, conscientiously. Participating in, in the rhythm and the flow of the day. Seeing where one is becoming competitive with one's friends here in the meditation hall. See, seeing where one is um, using this force of determination rather than just developing that effort, that right effort for that moment-to-moment -moment attention. And in that there's far more opportunity for discovery, far more opportunity for um, an integrated approach to ourselves and our relationship to life. If we can just work quietly and systematically and purposefully in that way, the whole conditioning of mind, of success and failure, and that whole syndrome which so much governs our way of living, begins to truly begins to lose its power. Things which one thought, God, you know, life is just about getting and not getting, winning and losing, success and, and failure, and thinking, well, that's how everybody's living, so how can it be different? And just approaching things in a more caring and, and clear way, 
those kind of conditionings lose their validity, lose their, actually lose their reality. And something genuinely alternative becomes available to us. And this is called spiritual. It's tied and connected with, with love and affection and cooperation and a sense of interdependence and connectedness. And all of that is the, the expression of being free from the destructive influences of will and drive and ambition. And one might say those corruptions of mind. And so as Joseph very uh, wisely put it, the, the, the title of his uh, book and the early issues which were published, um, an experience of insight and natural unfolding. And this practice and this way, which is so much, as you see, free really of so much of the religiosity and is kept as reasonably as clear and simple as possible, is all about getting a sense of a natural unfolding in which there is a, an appreciation and acknowledgement of when one is with the breathing, when one is not with it, when one is, when one is with the walking experience and when one isn't with it. And regarding the totality of one's experience as something worth looking at, working with, discovering, and finding out the reality of. May all beings be in touch with themselves. May all beings be in touch with life. May all beings participate in a natural unfolding.